This summer we've been spending some time studying the incredible life of David. We're going to continue that here today. Looking forward to doing some different messages coming up this fall. The Lord has laid on my heart a series of messages that I'm going to do here pretty soon called Lies About God. And boy, aren't there some lies being told about God in our culture today. So keep an eye and an ear out for that. That's going to be coming soon. But uh, today we're in 1 Samuel, Old Testament, once again continuing our study on the life of David. I once heard a story about a single mother who had two boys that were just borderline incorrigible. These two rambunctious boys were getting into all kinds of mischief and trouble, and their poor mother was at her wit's end. And so finally she decided to pull out the big guns. She took those boys to her pastor to see if the man of God could straighten them out. Well, the day came for their first meeting, and the mother waited outside the waiting room as the boys went into the pastor's office. Uh, They sat down, and the pastor waited no time. They began to feel intimidated as he loomed over that large desk, and with a deep, booming voice, he asked the first boy, he said, Son, where is God? Well, the little boy, he was feeling uh, quite intimidated. He didn't say anything. pastor was getting a little bit impatient, so he asked again. He said, son, did you not hear me? I asked you, where is God? You could have heard a pin drop in that office. I mean, it was total silence. The pastor now was getting a little miffed. The boys weren't responding, and so he cleared his throat a little bit. Son, for the last time. Where is God? Well, that was it. The boy couldn't take that interrogation anymore. He grabbed the hand of his kid brother beside him. They bolted out the door, and as they were going by their mother, one boy said to the younger one, he said, Run, Johnny. Uh, Come on, let's get out of here. They've lost God, and they're trying to pin it on us. (laughs) Maybe you can relate. Maybe there's been a time in your life When you were running scared, we run from our past, from our problems, from our pain, because we'd rather not confront the situation. The Bible is full of runners. The first man, Adam, he ran from God and hid in shame after eating that forbidden fruit in Genesis chapter 3. We all know the story of Jonah who ran from a call of God, running the opposite way to Tarshish when he was to go to Nineveh. Elijah, the great prophet, called down fire from heaven, and yet he was afraid of Jezebel's wrath, and he ran in 1 Kings 19. Jacob, he was also a runner. He caused a lot of family drama, ran away to Laban's to escape the problems that he had created. And David was a runner too, as we will see this morning in 1 Samuel 21. Now the reasons for why we run are myriad. Fear, Fatigue, failure, they're all motivations for running. But what drove David to run was all of these coupled with something else, a lack of faith. Now since David's victory over Goliath, we've noted how he has been a fugitive. He's been dodging Saul's spears and trying to stay one step ahead of his bloodhounds. In fact, a good portion of 1 Samuel records David's days as a man on the run. There's approximately a 14-year period of time that elapses between David's anointing 
to the time when he actually takes office in 2 Samuel at the age of 30. So he spends a a good 14-year chunk of his life running. Now, as we turn to the Scripture today, we're going to see David hit a low point on his way to the throne. He's running scared. The Lord is allowing the props to be kicked out from under David to help him learn how to trust. But when we are running scared, what happens is fear begins to override faith and that leads us into a series of bad decisions. In the message today, we're going to look at a few life lessons that I think David shows us about what happens when we resort to running scared. And it's my hope today that if you're running from God, that by the end of the message, you'll be running to God. So I want you to see number one as we turn into 1 Samuel chapter 21. The first lesson we see, running scared leads to deceptive cover-ups. Running scared leads to deceptive cover-ups. We'll read the first nine verses in this chapter together. And then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such a place. Verse 3, Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me... Five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. The priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always as I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? Verse 6, so the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by the hot bread on the day that it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And when David said to Ahimelech, then have you not a spear or a sword at hand, for I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, then take it. For there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Running scared leads to, number one, deceptive cover-ups. Saul is breathing down David's neck and he decides to take refuge in a village named Nob, which at this time, according to our text, was the home of the tabernacle and the high priest, a man named Ahimelech. Now naturally, Ahimelech wonders what has brought David to his doorstep. Now notice here, rather than tell the truth, David tells a lie. And he says that he's on a secret mission from Saul. In fact, David is running from Saul. Saul is seeing David now as a threat. He's already chucked spears in David's direction. David is running for his life. But then we notice that David asked for bread for his men and asked Ahimelech if there's any spare weapons laying around that 
he might confiscate. We see that Ahimelech chooses compassion over ceremony and he hands over some of this holy bread that was reserved only for the priesthood. This is the bread that was put out every day in the tabernacle on the table of showbread, what the Bible calls here the holy bread. And then after feeding David, he gives him a historical artifact to defend himself. It was Goliath's sword, the same blade that David used to chop the head off the giant. And you can picture there as David is strapping this oversized weapon to his side, he has no idea how much trouble this lie and that sword is going to cause him. In fact, he says, give me that sword. There's no other one like it. He had no idea the trouble he was setting for himself. Now the question arises as we study this text, why did David lie? Was David trying to protect Ahimelech from danger? Or did David feel like he couldn't trust him? I mean, he is a man on the run. He doesn't know who he can trust. The Bible doesn't clarify. It doesn't go into the thought process of David. It merely reports the events. But this lie is going to come back and bite David big time. And we have all learned this firsthand. Lying is a sin that can have long-range consequences because in order to keep that false narrative that we've crafted, we have to prop it up with another lie and another lie and another lie. When you're running scared, this is the first thing that happens is you start trying to manipulate circumstances and it leads to a pattern of lying. Reminds me of the story of four high school boys who got spring fever. They couldn't resist the temptation to ditch classes and go fishing. So they did. And the next day when they showed up for school, their first period teacher asked them about their absence. And they had all colluded before they walked into class and they had the same cover-up story. A teacher, we missed this class yesterday because we all ride together and, and we had a flat tire. Well, this wasn't the first time the teacher had had the wool pulled over her eyes. And so she said, well, boys, you missed a pop quiz yesterday. Pull out a sheet of paper and a pencil. You've got to make up this test. And so they did. They thought they had pulled the wool over the teacher's eyes. And she said, here's question number one. First question, which tire was flat? <laughs> they probably hadn't thought that far ahead. Friend, you and I know that lying can be a real temptation because it's convenient. And it seems like a quick fix to get out of the jam, doesn't it? And, and lying, really, what lying does, if you get to the root of it, it demonstrates a lack of faith in God. You say, how so? Well, take David's example here. David's lie was a means to an end for food and protection. These are small things that God could have provided for him. God had already given him a promise. David, you're going to be king. You're anointed you have my spirit. There, you have a destiny and a purpose. David didn't need to resort to lying because God had already given a promise. God wasn't going to let Saul kill David before he got to the throne. God was in charge. Friend, let me ask you a question. Why is it that we can trust God for big things like when we lay our head on the pillow at night that God will keep the earth spinning perfectly on its axis and we can trust God with our eternal soul, but yet when it comes to the small things of life, all of a sudden we have trouble trusting God. Friend, God is 
great not just because nothing is too big for him, but God is great because nothing is too small for him. Now, interesting, the human experience, we trust God for the big things, but when it comes to the little things, all of a sudden we start quaking in our boots and resorting to devious cover-ups. When someone is running scared, the first sign is dishonesty. If you're nursing an affair or an addiction or you have a secret sin in your life, the first tactic is to lie to cover up the sin. We cover up a double life. When we're on the run, we start manipulating circumstances rather than trusting God. The reason is because we think if the consequences get out, if the truth gets out and people really know the truth about us, they won't accept us anymore. We run from our past. We run from our problems. We run from our pain. And here's the thing. When we run from God, we run from our only source of provision and protection. And so David is getting himself into a real pickle, as they say. Let me ask you a question, friend. Are you running today? Before God and your soul naked before Him, are there some lies that you're telling that you're running from a situation? Let me tell you something today. The only way you're going to find peace is stop running. Stop lying. Stop trying to manipulate. Confess the truth. Repent. Turn to God for mercy today. He's a merciful God. By the way, don't miss the significance of verse 7. This is important. A little editorial comment that's just thrown in there. There was another person there that day who watched this interaction between Ahimelech and David. A certain man of the servants of Saul was there detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite. Who is this guy? Well, He's the head shepherd for Saul. He knew who David was, and he's spying out this situation. And he notes that the Himalek is now aiding and abetting Israel's most wanted man. This is going to come back to get David. Make a little note about this in verse 7. We're going to see Doeg again. So number one, running scared leads to deceptive cover-up. Am I preaching to anybody yet today? Number two, if I haven't got to you yet, just hang on. Number two, running scared leads to desperate conduct. David goes from a deceptive cover-up to desperate conduct. Look what verse 10 says. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another in him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and, and David his ten thousands. I told you that was the number one hit on the billboard in Israel at that time. Verse 12, And David took these words to, to heart and was much afraid. You see that? David is the one that's afraid now of Asius, the king of Gath. So there he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I like madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David is being rebuked by the pagan king. Desperate 
conduct. Now we may be able to rationalize in our mind David's flight to Nob to try and get those provisions. But this next move as he goes to Gath defies all common sense. And by the way, sin is stupid. (laughs) Because when you get in sin, you start talking a fool and you start acting different and you're not yourself. What is Gath? Well, Gath is not only the capital city of the Philistines, but it's the hometown of Goliath. And once again, the text doesn't go into David's thought process here, but perhaps he is going there to try and make an ally of the Philistine king. Remember, he's running scared. And the Philistines are the sworn enemies of Israel, and as the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and he's thinking in his mixed up mind, maybe I can have an alliance with him, Ashish, and he'll help me against Saul, and he's getting desperate. There's only one problem though, as David strolls into town that day, David's cover is blown by a giant-sized sword that he's got lugging the ground behind him. Now, this is comical if you think about it. Think of the mismatch. Here's little David with a big old blade running down his side, coming through the sand, and he's headed into the capital city of evil at that time. You see, the lie that he had told has now come back to haunt him. He might as well have walked into Gath wearing a neon sandwich sign that says, Hey, look at me. I'm the guy that killed Goliath. I mean, this is what I'm telling you. Sin is stupid. And when you get into a sinful pattern, you're not thinking logically anymore. And David is in that. In fact, the Bible says that David is afraid. David realized he couldn't hide his identity anymore. He starts acting like a madman. By the way, here's a man after God's own heart. He's foaming at the mouth like a rabid animal. Here's David the giant killer. The man, only one in Israel who would stand up to the giant. Now he's quaking in fear, seeking shelter in the capital city of the enemy. Let me just preach to you a little bit here this morning and remind you, friend, you won't find peace running to the world for shelter. Listen to what Max Licato wrote about this great application. He said, quote, Are you seeking refuge in Gath? Under normal circumstances, you would never go there. But you are running from a raging Saul that's threatening to take you down. It could be a problem that brought you there, or a secret sin or painful past you're trying to escape. There you are loitering in the breeding ground of giants, the hometown of trouble. You walk shady streets and frequent questionable places While there you go wild with sin, doing things you used to think were crazy, totally denying who you are in Christ Jesus. You are in a worse situation than an outright sinner. They don't know any better. But you, like David, are called by God and anointed by His Spirit. So why are you running to the world for solace? You see, friend, when you're running scared, things begin to get desperate. And I'm here today as somebody who loves your soul to tell you, you won't find peace in a six-pack or a bottle of pills. You won't find fulfillment surfing around on that website that you know you shouldn't be there at that hour of the day or any time. You won't find the thing you're looking for in the arms of somebody else who's not your spouse. You won't find the advice and the answers you're looking for running to the world seeking for their solace to get you out of the problem you're in. 
Listen to me. Hey, the most miserable man in the world is not a lost man. It's a saved person who's out of fellowship with God. And if you're backslidden, let me tell you, the Holy Spirit will not allow you to be content in church and He won't let you be content in the world. And I've known many running scared Christians who've gotten into sin, who've gotten into deception, who've gotten into desperate conduct and the Holy Spirit is chasing them down. And friend, there's no fun in that. There's no peace in that. And, and in this a picture of how, many, of how so many Christians try and live. I mean, here's David, the anointed of God, the blessed of God, the next king. And here he is rolling around on the ground, foaming at the mouth, acting like a fool, saying things and acting the way that he shouldn't. There's a lot of Christians who try and straddle the fence between the church life and the worldly life. And friend, you've got to deny both. And pretty soon you end up not belonging to either place. And even the pagan king, he looked at David. Hey, aren't you the king? Aren't you the one who slayed Goliath? Why are you acting crazy? Isn't it a sobering thing when you get rebuked by somebody who's lost? By somebody who don't know the Lord? By somebody who looks at your life and said, I thought you were Jane and Joe Christian. I thought you went down there to the Baptist church. Listen to the way you're talking. I thought you loved people. I thought you followed Jesus. We try and fit in with the world. Right? We adopt their practices. We adopt their garb. We adopt their way of thinking and their way of life. And friend, I'm telling you, if you have the Spirit of God abiding with you, God won't let you do it successfully. He'll let you fall flat on your face. Robert Robinson was the author of a hymn that we love in the church called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. He lost the joy of his salvation in some of his later years and he wandered from the Lord. And as a result, he became a deeply troubled spirit. So he thought to himself, Maybe I'll travel a little bit. He thought he could go across the world and fill that void and get rid of the problems in his life. But in the course of his journey, Robert Robinson became acquainted with a young Christian woman who was sharing a stagecoach with him. You know, in those days there wasn't Uber. It was horse and buggy. And so he got into this stagecoach and he's sharing the ride with this Christian girl, they don't know each other. He noticed her reading a book and asked what she was reading it. She said, oh, it's the most wonderful book of poetry and hymns. And to Robert Robinson's astonishment, she said, well, what are you reading right now? And she opened it and showed him the page. It's this wonderful hymn written by the man Robert Robinson, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. And then she turned to the hymn writer and said, Isn't it wonderful to know the Lord? You think God was after him? Robert Robertson tried to evade her question, but she continued to press him for a response. And all he could do was sit there in the stagecoach and weep. You ever been caught red-handed? All you can do is cry in brokenheartedness. With tears streaming down his cheeks, 
He said, ma'am, I am that poor, unhappy wretch who wrote that hymn many years ago and I would give anything if I could just experience the joy of my salvation again. She said, well, let me read back to you your own words. Oh, to grace, how, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. She said, at one time you believe these words. Believe them again. And stop running from God and run back to God. You can run hard and fast for a long time, can't you? But you can never outrun the hound of heaven. And eventually what Robert Robinson and David ran into was a dead end. And praise God for the dead ends that He puts along our path because if we would have got our way and kept on running, there's no telling what kind of mess we would have ended up in. Or what kind of early grave the enemy might have had planned for us. But I'm thankful for a God who will kick out the props just in time to let you and me fall on our face before we get too far away so He can reach down with that big long arm of mercy and grace and pull us up out of the mess that we've created. They ran into a dead end. But I'm asking you today, what about you? You felt the Lord closing in upon you? <laughs> You can run hard and you can run long. But I'm telling you, the hound of heaven, he never takes a day off. He can find you in the places where you don't want to be found. Like a gaff. Like a place, a dark night, a bedside, a sleepless moment. A place where you think you're alone and you're scot-free and you can get away from everybody but your thoughts and you can't get away from the Holy Spirit. So number one, we see running scared leads to a few things. It leads to deceptive conduct. And then secondly, it leads to, as we noticed, desperate conduct. And then number three, I want you to see running scared leads to disastrous consequences. Disastrous consequences. Read with me verse 1 of chapter 22, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became a commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. David becomes a man without a country. He's not allowed in Israel. He can't go back. Saul's on his track. He can't go to Nob because of the problem he calls there. He's been booted out from Gath. David's got nowhere to go. And he finally reaches this cul-de-sac at a place the Bible calls Adullam. He becomes a cave dweller. David, the caveman. Think about that. The one who's destined for the throne, living in a dark, damp cave. This is where David's life begins to bottom out at this point. The Bible says he's also joined by 400 other outlaws 
that happened to be on Saul's hit list. And eventually, these men will become David's mighty men. But in some ways, you could say that David is kind of like an Old Testament Robin Hood because here he is, the Lord of the Losers and the Duke of the Deadbeats. I mean, all the outscourings of society find out that David's hiding out in this no man's land and they say, well, we might as well join him. How about that? It would be nice if chapter 22 ends there. But it doesn't. Remember I told you about that old fellow Doeg the Edomite? There's a loose end hanging here that needs to be tied up. That fellow Doeg, he ends up ratting out Ahimelech to King Saul. Saul goes to Nob and he visits Ahimelech and he accuses him of treason for helping David And the result is that Saul is so crazy with vengeance, he orders Doeg to slay Ahimelech and 85 members of the priesthood right there in the city of Nob. Only one man survived that raid to tell the story. His name is Abathar, the son of the high priest, and he gets there, no doubt exhausted and out of breath, to the cave of Adullam, and listen to what he tells David. Verse 16. The Bible says, And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. For they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike down the priests of God. And then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Y'all, Saul has lost it. But one of these sons, Ahimelech the son, Named Abathar escaped and fled after David. But Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me and do not be afraid for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. The full reality of David's sin now comes crashing down on him. The lie, the stolen sword, the crazy outburst at Gath, it now comes to bear on David's life and his deceit has now touched off a domino effect that his, he could never have predicted. Let me remind you of something. Sin is not an isolated incident. Don't you ever believe the lie the enemy's whispering to you. Oh, you'll get away with it. Nobody has to know. Be sure your sin will find you out. If David couldn't get away with it and as clever and as brilliant as he were, what makes you think you can run scared? What makes you think you can do better than David and get away with it? Our lives are always inextricably linked to other people. And we always think, oh, my sin isn't hurting anybody. What a lie from the devil. Your sin always hurts somebody else. Even if it's God, it hurts. And it hurts you. 
Listen, sin will take you further than you wanted to go. Teach you more than you wanted to know. Keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And cost you more than you wanted to pay. You know what the most important thing that happens in this chapter here? The most important thing that happens to David in chapter 22 is finally he stops running. Oh, there's some folk who need to hear those words today. The victory will begin with you when you stop running. When you stop deceiving, when you stop manipulating, when you stop running scared. Can you picture David here? He has nowhere else to go. He's burdened with sin and shame. His life is a wreck. He's caused the death of 85 people. And now finally, he drops on his knees to pray. How long had it been since David had prayed? We don't know. How long has it been since you actually had a candid and real conversation with God and you allowed Him to probe in the deep parts of your soul that you've been hiding and shutting off and running away from? Friend, I'm telling you, stop running. And there in the the silence and the solitude of that cave, David can now hear the voice of the Lord again. You see, something crazy happens when you stop running. Oh, you're running hard and you're running fast and you're trying to keep yourself distracted and you're trying to cover things up. But when you get to a point when you're tired of running and you can allow your mind to slow down a little bit and your heartbeat goes down, all of a sudden something strange happens. You can now hear the voice of God. Because before that, God couldn't get a word in edgewise. You were running so fast. You were running so hard trying to get away from the one who loves you the most. In in this darkness here in Adullam, David pins two psalms. You can go look them up in the superscription. Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. David writes two psalms in this cave. I want you to listen to what he writes in Psalm 42. You tell me if this is coming from a man who'd been running scared. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry out to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. You see, David has been led into a prison of his own creation. And he's asking God, God, get me out of this. Does God hear a prayer like that? Oh God, I've made a mess of things. Oh God, I'm in over my head way too deep. Oh God, if there's still mercy and grace, get me out of this thing that I've created for myself. That's when the victory can begin 
to turn around in David's life. He stopped running and he started calling on the name of the only one who could get him out of the mess he'd made in his life. And I'm telling you, if you've walked with God long enough, you've made a mess of things before and you had to get down in that low place and say, God, I can't do this no more. God, I can't run any harder. God, I need you. Rescue me from myself, God. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Oh, God says, oh, what was that? You need me? And rather than casting us aside, and condemning us, and opening up a hole and letting us fall into a bottomless pit, God says, now we can start. Because you're ready to be taught. You're ready to be forgiven. You're ready to learn the ways of grace. And most importantly, you're ready to let go. Some of us today have been running. And you're tired. You can stop running today. I want to tell you a story as I leave. David's cave prayer resembled the experience of another David. David Tyree. You may know that name if you're a sports fan. He was the wide receiver for the New York Giants who in Super Bowl 42, he completed what ESPN called the greatest play in Super Bowl history. David Tyree caught a 32-yard pass from quarterback Eli Manning with one minute and 15 seconds left. He leapt over his defender and he trapped the ball on top of his helmet. I was watching in real time and I couldn't believe it when I saw it. They went on to score a touchdown. They beat the Patriots. Praise God. Sorry, Jace. David Tyree made millions of dollars playing football. You know, the greatest lie that we believe is we think all the millionaires and rich and famous people are happy. They're some of the most miserable, messed up people in the world. Why do we put them on a pedestal? They're broken, messed up just like you are. Just like me. David Tyree made millions of dollars, but he said, I blew all my money on women and clothes and cars and liquor and drugs. He said, I was running. His wife gave him an ultimatum, get sober or get divorced. Despite his best attempts to clean up, David Tyree could not stop running. You can't save yourself, friend. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. He missed a team meeting and was fined $10,000. And so he decided, well, I can sell some of my marijuana from my stash to cover the fine. I told you sin was stupid. On the way to make that sale, he was pulled over by a cop for a traffic violation. He had a half pound of marijuana in his car. He went to jail. Here's what he said. He said, while I was in that jail cell, that's when I cried out to God for the first time in my life. My heart was broken. I simply said, God, I now realize that I need you. But God, I don't know what to do. How honest. David Tyree got out of prison. He went home. When he went home, he went into his bedroom and he noticed an open Bible on his bed. 
He asked his wife about it. He said, what's this? She said, I've been reading the Bible. And it tells me of the most wonderful news. And David, I want to tell you that I've met Jesus. And and he's cleaned up my life. And I'm not the same wife that I used to be. David Tyree said, we made a beeline to the church that Sunday. The closest church we can find. And there at an old altar, I gave up my sinful lifestyle. I prayed and I received this Jesus Christ who stopped me when I was running away. He said this about his time in prison. He said, what looked to be the lowest, worst point in my life ended up being the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Oh, the greatest thing that could happen to some of you today is to stop running. Repent and turn and go to Jesus. If you identify with David's failure today, then listen to this. You need a better king. We need a better king than David. David may have had the anointing and he was going to wear the crown, but as I read that story, I realize I need a better king. I need somebody who can save me and somebody who didn't mess up and somebody who didn't fall flat on their face. And I'm here today to tell you about a king who can save you. Listen to this. Like David, Jesus was despised and rejected. Like David, Jesus had enemies who plotted his death. Like David, Jesus gathered to him the many sinners and rejects of society around him. Oh, but unlike David, my king never lied. He never schemed. He never hurt anybody with selfish choices. And like David... He spent time in a cave. He went into a cave and they rolled a stone over the mouth of that cave. And he got out three days later. And friend, I'm telling you, he can save you. But the thing that you've got to realize is, you've got to stop running long enough to hear him speak to you. Our musicians are coming today. I wonder, for those of you that have been running, You tired enough yet? Running from a call? Running from a sin? From something in your past? Running from a broken relationship? I don't know what it is. I'm telling you, there's still mercy and grace today. And there is a king better than David who can heal you, restore you, and get you out of that cave that you're in.